Welcome back, everybody. It's episode 17, right, guys? 17? 17. Um, very cool, man. And we've got our guest, Haley Perlman. And um, give us a little intro on Haley. So Haley and I were in the same counseling program at Boston University together during our graduate years. And um, I knew she was a University of Vermont swimmer, and we became friendly in the program. And... Um, you know, via social media and stuff, I knew that she was in Chicago and she was in a PhD program for clinical psychology at uh, Illinois Institute of Technology. So um, I wanted to reach out to her to get on the podcast. One, because, you know, she's obviously transitioned out, out of sport as well. Um, but she's also in the realm of working with athletes and in the mental health field, which has been um, a big hot topic recently in the news, uh, athletes and mental health. So g gaining her perspective on that was, was really insightful. And I think there'll be a lot of good takeaways for our listeners. Yeah, totally. We covered some of the topics, um, you know, the tragic uh, suicide, Tyler Holinsky, the Washington State quarterback, Michael Phelps talking about his um, battle with depression, everything from there to uh, some of the feedback and tips that she has for athletes transitioning into life after sports um, kind of validates what we're doing here. I thought we all thought that was um, pretty impactful, but an awesome guest um, and we'll dive right into it. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to What's Next. We're on uh, episode 17 here. We've got Haley Perelman on. She was a former swimmer at the University of Vermont, and Haley and I were actually classmates in our graduate program at Boston University. Um, and now she is, are you in your fourth year now? I am. She's in her fourth year at the Illinois Institute of Technology in a clinical PhD program for psychology. Um, so we're super psyched to have you on. There's a lot that's been going on currently in the world of uh, athletics and college athletics that I think um, you'll be great to, to tune in about. So thanks for coming on, Haley. Yeah, happy to be here. So if you just want to start off, um, just tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe you know a little bit about, about your college career at UVM and kind of what brought you to, to where you are now. Cool, I can do that. So yeah, um, I was a college swimmer for four years of my undergrad training. Um, I was particularly an IMer and distance butterflyer. Distance butterfly, not by choice. Um, and I um, graduated with the intent of going to med school, so I ended up in clinical neuroscience for a bit before, like Anthony mentioned, um, changed tracks and ended up pursuing my master's degree in sports psych. Um, at the end of that, I felt like I needed more training to figure out what realm of psychology I wanted to land in. So I ended up applying to clinical psych PhD programs and accepted a position at the um, at Illinois Institute of Technology in downtown Chicago. So that's where I am now. Um, I've kind of changed tracks with where I wanted to specialize, but have realized I'm actually really passionate about clinical level eating disorders and just like general uh, disordered eating in um, college athletes in particular. So that's what I'm working on specializing in right now. It sounds great. Was this, did that spur uh, in you by you being a swimmer yourself? Um, yeah, that's yeah, exactly. So um, 
without getting like too much into the jargon, uh, swimming is one of those types of sports where weight and shape matter for optimal performance. And I think that really contributed to a lot of like disordered eating behaviors and body dissatisfaction among my teammates. So I was constantly present to conversations where people are really scrutinizing themselves and developing, you know, unhealthy behaviors to compensate for the way they wanted to look for performance. Um, so I've always been interested in this. I just, it took me a long time to make my research and clinical paths meet. So I landed in it more by coincidence than anything, but yeah, it's been an interest of mine for a while. Very cool. Very cool. I know Neil was shaking his head when you, uh, when you described what you swam in college, Neil's dad was actually a swimmer too. So they share a little bit. Yeah. My, my dad was 50 free, hundred free. So you kind of get the mentality. I grew up following him, just get it over with in and out of the pool. Um, and then aunt and I, like as part of our like training, we, we just, we swam a lot in college. Like we just go to LA fitness and do swimming and then go to practice and limber up and everything. But, um, yeah, I I think we, we saw more as just like, we'd stretch out and I don't know, we'd put like the the leggings on and everything after, and you just felt like really loose and good, but yeah, distance butterfly is that's impressive and you said it's not by choice so how did you get yeah I I always knew I was going to specialize in the IM just because I did all throughout high school um I I knew that I had like I'm just I've always had upper body strength even before I started conditioning so I kind of knew that I was good for those events no one wants to swim them no one wants to specialize in them um I managed to get through I think until like winter of junior year with just doing the hundred level I am a uh, hundred level fly before during training trip, which was like, we would go to Florida for 10 days and do nothing but swim in between the semesters. My coach was like, okay, so I'm going to start training you as a 200 butterflyer. Now it's going to be your thing without any conversation or like processing around it. And I was like, okay, this is how the next year and a half of my life is going to be. Let's do it. So uh, yeah, that's awesome. Hey, Ellie, did you did you experience kind of any of the the phasing out of athletics? Um, pretty much the the premise of our our podcast. Did you experience that lull in like I'm not an athlete anymore, but let me stick around? Like even though you're in a psych program, it's still related to you know research with athletes. Yeah, I think it was actually maybe even particularly challenging for me processing the like I have to leave now. I did my four years time because. Like I said, I was really interested in medicine, so I stayed on. Um, I, I took a job right after college at University of Vermont in like the med- in clinical neuroscience department, like in psychiatry in the medical school. And so I was still on campus. I just moved apartments, like the way we've always moved apartments in between years. Um, and all of a sudden, it was three thirty p.m. one. I don't know Monday in late August, and I wasn't at practice, and it was really really tough to wrap my mind around this new life and, and changing, um, yeah, just that huge change in lifestyle. That's interesting. Like being in the physical space of the university, like still, still has you connected. I mean, even still, even still now, which is kind of a, it's kind of a cool thing to feel like you're still connected to the academia or connected to the name of the university, you know, even though you're not swimming. Yeah, it is. Especially I like, um, I'm not doing this right now, but my first of my practicum experiences, which is about two years ago, was at the College Counseling Center at IIT. So I was very immersed in the culture and doing community outreach. I was leading. I did a couple body image groups with, I think, through a sorority and then through just like a general dorm. Some RA reached out to me. So it's really nice to still be involved in the culture. 
what was that what was that work experience like working with college students specifically were they were they seeking you out i'm i'm tr- trying to picture just being on campus and you know coming to terms with you know i got to go to health services uh, yeah. on my own like being your own self advocate as an 18 19 20 year old kid kind of it's actually really surprising but also really pleasing so as far as like and i i know we um I was thinking about this in preparation for talking tonight. So mental health stigma is still very much a thing, but college counseling centers are very, very, very well utilized. In fact, there was often a huge wait list and um, the model of therapy that we, and I know other Chicago based student health centers were practicing was like that of short term therapy because people, so we were so high in demand. So our caseloads were really high and um, we were often having to refer to just general private practice community uh, clinicians just because people wanted to come talk and deal with the stuff that was going on. So that was really nice to see. Wow. That, that is interesting. I actually, I w- was thinking the opposite to be honest with you. So that's, that's really good to hear. Yeah. And I well, was thinking the opposite until I landed in that culture and yeah, it's very much the opposite of what I expected and that we were. Spent. What were some, what were some of the typical issues that you were, that you were seeing amongst the, amongst the general population. And then maybe if you can go into talking just a little bit about, uh, like what issues might be more particular to athletes that you've experienced. Yeah. So I will preface this by saying IIT, Illinois Institute of Technology is a very, very unique school. It's probably one of the most diverse student bodies I've ever worked with. But that being said, we have a lot of like foreign students, um, and it's a tech school. So it brings in, you know, and the engineer minded folk who they want, they want like the solution to plug into their equation and X, Y, and Z, and they'll start feeling better. So it's a lot of like psychoeducation type therapy around like helping people understand, like you can't outthink your emotions and this is like work you need to do. So I did a lot of that, which is probably not the case at a different school. Um, but it's also a lot of just like adjustment, uh, to the, new lifestyle of being in college. I'm sure stuff you would guess. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a lot of anxiety work actually just around coursework and stuff like that. Um, depression, eating disorders. So a lot of variety. And were you, were you doing that full time at this point or were you popping in there, um, you know, occasionally with your other work too? I was at the, I was at the MBA, um, so this is the most like structured practicum I've ever been to. It was about exactly 21 hours a week. So I was there for a half day and then two full days. Okay. I was there often. Yeah. That sounds like a really great experience for, for you going forward. Um, mm-hmm. you know, with, with your work now, really. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering just a bit about, um, I guess we always talk about, work-life balance on here with our other other interviewees um, and just what they do particularly. And for you, you're still in like an academic focus, an academic program with your clinical work. Um, but also what I was wondering, like the intensity of the subject matter that you cover and that you, that you work with is kind of, is, is heavy. Like it weighs on you to an extent where I feel like that self-care component needs to, needs to come into play. And we, we talk about that with, with other people in, you know, different fields. And I just feel like there's a, there might be a slight difference here with the work that you do particularly. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have asked that just because it is so taxing and you are so busy. So the two things that I have learned, so one is to 
use your supervision, really find your supervisor who can support you and help you develop skills to basically like leave work at work and to really separate it from your personal life. Cause otherwise you'll burn out and you won't be helpful to the, to the patients or clients. Um, and then the other thing that's worked for me, so I'm sure it doesn't surprise you. I'm a go, go, go. I like to get things done. And there's just always something to do when you add research to the component, you know, to school in terms of classwork and the therapy training, there's always something to do. So I've learned to honor when I just don't want to do anything. And instead of pushing myself through um, a day where I'm essentially just not feeling it, I honor that and I don't do anything. And I think really checking in with yourself and seeing where you are and what you need has been, has been key for me for really getting through all the various responsibilities I have to get through. Haley, I think that's a really, really important point because I think for a lot of people, especially new in the workplace or, or out there, they that internal dialogue of of coming to grips with, like they always say, listen to your body. But like how those initial internal conversations have to be pretty hard where you're like, if I'm not doing anything, therefore I'm complacent or therefore I'm not, you know, there's like your point, there's always something out there. How did you manage those first couple of trials to get to a point where I'm comfortable? I know this is the right move because I think that's an important piece. Yeah. So I think it's definitely easier said than done. Uh, my internal log always goes to like, Oh my God, my advisor is going to think I'm slacking off or like, I'm totally going to add a whole year to my program because I didn't feel like, reading up on the body dissatisfaction measure on this Sunday afternoon. So for me personally to get through it, I just needed some data to show that everything will be okay. So I think it was around the time I defended my master's thesis, which was this past July. I was the third person out of like the 10 of us to defend it. And it was just really concrete data that it is okay to honor those days to not do anything. And I mean, the inner dialogue still there. I just kind of, I don't let it overpower my desire to just kind of have a relaxing day. So knowing that I have experiences where I, you know, things were fine, no one's gotten mad or, or said that I'm slacking off. That's just helped me kind of hear the inner dialogue and move on. That's huge. It's good to know there's data out there too to, to support it when all else fails. That makes the case too, right? I think it's crazy. We're even hearing it from like, a clinician, a trained person in the field and realizing how hard it is for this person that has the knows, I guess what to say and do, um, you know, when it arises and then, yeah, it's still very hard. It is. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I want to move into some of the, some of the current events that we've been seeing on the news recently, unfortunately, some of them really tragic, um, recently in the news, Washington state quarterback, um, I think he was 21 years old, completed suicide, you know, wound up, you know, using, I think, a rifle maybe. Um, and it was just really, really harsh news. You heard all his teammates just saying how how well liked he was, you know, how much of a great friend and teammate he was. His coaches spoke on his behalf. Um, you know, and then we were hearing, you know, Michael, Michael Phelps, the most decorated Olympian, kind of opened up about his his bouts with depression and self-medication and stuff. And I'm wondering is, is this us seeing um, mental health coming to the forefront more, or is this us seeing like we're in an epidemic or like a crisis kind of? Um, yeah. So I think that's a really good question. I think it's just mental health having more spotlight, or at least that's what I'd like to think. 
Um, so it's really interesting that you asked that because, um, so I do this master's thesis and dissertation, but kind of like the middle project that I have to do in between those, I have to defend, um, and successfully pass a comprehensive exam on a topic of my choice. So I did that in November and I actually looked at depression in sport, um, specifically when is sport a risk factor or when is, um, sport no longer a protective factor for mental health concerns. Um, and basically what I found is like, yeah, sport is great for managing mental health, especially when you have that community piece and when you, when you feel really supported by your teammates, but there's actually a ton of risk factors for like the development of mental health in, uh, development of anxiety and mental health concerns in sport. So one of the most salient ones is this idea, and I'm sure all of us can relate to it on, on some level, um, It's this idea that you're supposed to push through everything because that makes you a better athlete. And there's no one out there that teaches you where that line is between like, yeah, I'm committing to something and I'm not letting anyone down versus this is actually detrimental to my physical and mental health. And so um, there's actually a ton of risk factors, but I wonder if that's starting to play a role because athletes might not feel like they know when to draw that line. And it could be something simple as, do I push through swim practice with this really bad cold or do I take this day off? But, but there's, there's no real like way to gauge when you come first. So I think that plays a big role in it. That's really interesting. I think just generally amongst the population, we are always viewing, viewing sport as, you know, a protective factor, a way to be more social, a way to for it to be an outlet. I mean, if you think of conversations with with young kids who, um, you know, maybe are struggling in in something in their lives, and it's like, oh, let's get them involved in this sport program. Let's have them join the wrestling team. It'll build their confidence, mm-hmm. like things like that. And you know, I guess as you get older and more competitive, that that buffer starts to to, to thin yeah. a little bit. You know, especially I don't know yeah. for me particularly. Um, and I guess uh, amongst other men too, this idea of coupling the competitiveness and that stuff with like this culture of like masculinity and what those traits yeah. do when, do when they're combined. Yeah, um, it's just like you you're not allowed to show any weakness, physical or mental. You know. Yes, exactly. And there's actually like. You know, and so some people might not really experience any of the risk factors. There are people out there who, like, regardless of the level of competition, that team support does it for them. It keeps them going and so on. But, you know, things like injury, burnout, overtraining, failure in competition. Uh, interestingly enough, your sport type. So for people who, again, are in, like, figure skating, so sports where uh, weight and shape matter for performance, those all contribute to you know, more depression or could contribute to more depression or anxiety in sport for sure. So there's a ton of, a ton of risk factors out there and it's hard to predict like who's going to be susceptible versus who won't. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. I've, I've just been like, I guess putting some of that stuff together as you know, there's been more talk in, in the news and whatnot. And I think also some of the destigmatizing of mental health, which is, which is great. So like you said, it's more on the news cycle, it's more conversations happening on campuses and, and in schools and stuff. So on the one hand where we are seeing some, what would be bad news, you know, conversations are, are happening too. So. So important. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Haley, can you talk through, um, you, you mentioned like shape sports. I think that, that's interesting or like the, the different sports, um, where the body shape matters. And I think, uh, a lot of even going back to our last episode with um, the Bayer sisters, where there's this ideology, or like I'm an athlete, and Aunt and I talk about it all the time of like our breakfast as athletes. We get a breakfast sandwich and then a bagel on top of that. And there was a time where you could eat anything. Um, I guess talk through, and it sounds like you guys had to correct that, like as swimmers earlier on as competing, but I guess talk through like the transition of being a college athlete and then how dangerous it is, I guess, maintaining that your way of eating or like how, how quickly you need to correct and how, I guess, are some first couple steps that people yeah. can take. Absolutely. So I, I heard two questions in there. So I'm going to try to answer them both. Separately. It might even been a third. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so just remind me if I, if I forget what the second part was, but oh. so essentially, um, an eating disorders treatment, um, you know, like the treatments in particular that are really researched, the thinking is that a lot of eating disordered and like general disordered eating pathologies stem from this over concern. So this way over evaluation of your body shape and weight. So that sounds really neat and clean in, um, in general body dissatisfaction in athlete literature, there is no really clean distinction between sports where you have that emphasis or over evaluation on shape and weight and sports that don't. Um, but it, the research essentially tends to like trend in this direction that shows that there, it is okay to like categorize sports into lean promoting and non lean promoting sports. So lean promoting sport is a sport where you have to be at a certain weight or a certain shape to impact your, or you, it impacts your performance if you're not at whatever ideal weight. Whereas something like basketball is a sport where it doesn't necessarily matter what your body shape and weight is for composition, uh, for performance. So when I, when I say shape, you know, sports where it matters, um, I, I it comes from that thinking of weight and shape and over-evaluation of those two things eventually lead to that body dissatisfaction or disordered eating. So that, that is where I was going with that. Yep. Um, and then your second question so, um, I've always told myself, and I probably shouldn't say this on air. <laughs> I've always told myself I wanted to write a book essentially called how to eat for retired athletes, because there's so much that you have to learn. I, I mean, growing up, you know, people were really like paying attention to portion sizes and watching X, Y, and Z. And I never had to, because I was ravenous because I was burning all these calories swimming, especially when you're doing doubles, you know, there's in swimming in particular, I'm only speaking from my, my personal knowledge, there is no like practice where you're running plays or you're standing around while you're like kind of talking things through and figuring out the best way to tackle something. You are constantly swimming and, and, and burning calories and so on. So it was like at 22 years old, it was this very, very new experience. Um, and I think that anyone with a vulnerability for an eating disorder or body dissatisfaction might even experience a more intense version of what I went through with, with the changes in your body composition. I mean, unless you're unemployed, like how are you really going to work and, and transition into the career part of your life and maintain that level of, of exercise and so on, unless you're waking up at three 30 in the morning, um, so I think it's definitely something that a lot of people go through, especially when they've never really had to pay attention to it before. 
Yeah. You just have no idea how to handle it. It's all changing and you don't have practice at two o'clock where it's like, oh, they're going to run us. This is fine. This is no big deal. It's like, hey, you might actually suffer the consequences here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and for people who have that initial vulnerability, um, who start paying attention to this, downloading my fitness pal and tracking calories, that could turn into something that's really dangerous for some people. Right. Yeah. Again, you- like. Uh, again, so like, you know, Americans are constantly going on diets, especially this month, right? Like people are interested in starting whole 30 for the rest of their life and whatever. <laughs> I see you're a fan. But for, and for some people, the diet's going to work. I mean, for a very select few people, that's going to be a lifestyle change. For most people, it's going to be a fad. And then for like a handful of people, it might actually turn into an eating disorder, but you can't predict that. It's it's an underlying vulnerability that you don't know is there, and then it becomes it becomes something more you know pathological or, or an issue that needs to be tackled. I love it. Well, you said you were going to write a book, and now you've opened up that door, and there's no there's no going back. Um, I don't know, Neil. You started taking notes as soon as Haley said that, so um, yeah. you know, in five years when Neil, when Neil starts to. Uh, be like, hey guys, I I got this book I've been working on. on yes. This idea came to me. Haley's idea. Follow the ghostwriter. You don't know her. Um, but but I I guess in the um, in the BuzzFeed mantra, do you have like a certain three things or, or like a couple tips that you give people that come to mind? Like favorite apps, favorite resources that if somebody listened to this, they can just go to uh, to kind of recalibrate or something that they want to buy. And because you said it, it is a new year and people are, you know, making that effort. Um, so while we're on that topic, if you have any favorite things that you, you like go to. Style changes? Yeah. 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 So, so um, it's funny you ask that. So my answer is no. And here is why. So, so through my work with like eating disorders and so on, I'm trained and I actually fully believe that there's no such thing as a bad food. There's no such thing as something you should be avoiding or restricting. It's all about adding in and finding out what works for you in moderation. So my advice for someone who, you know, is not paying attention to their food and all of a sudden wants to do Whole30, instead of cutting out, it's about adding in and figuring out what works for you. Um, Again, I only work right now clinically with a population who has disordered eating or clinical level eating disorders. So it's really important that 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 advice uh, sticks with them. Um, but yeah, it's just I, I've actually noticed like me personally, I used to I, I finished swimming and I was, you know, for years I was I'm not going to I'm going to stay away from this type of food and then I'm going to feel crappy if I eat it and so on. And I kind of just realized over the last few years, do what you want kind of, I don't adhere to any particular plan or diet. I just try to listen to my body and eat regularly. And, um, actually, so I guess my one piece of advice with that would be to eat regularly. It's, there's a ton of research supporting it is what I tell every eating disorder patient, um, have three meals a day, two to three snacks a day and eat every three to four hours. And if you plan, if you plan your eating, then it results in a lot less, problematic behaviors or behaviors that make you feel guilty, like, you know, skipping breakfast and then having a huge dinner that you didn't plan for and that kind of stuff. Right. The one thing I picked up on that, Haley, is like, just I even, the, just <laughs> even that, I mean, I picked up more things, but this is the one thing that maybe some of our viewers will, our listeners will, uh, could take away too. Just in the language that you use, um, saying add in, what can you add into you know, whether it's your diet or your lifestyle at that point, I think we're in like a culture of like, 
How can we more so deprive ourselves or take away things that we enjoy or sacrifice more or suffer more? And like, just like, what is a resolution? And your resolution is going to be to like add stuff into your lifestyle. Just like even changing that sentence, like it makes you, you know, it makes you have to think about it in a, in just a a whole new, a whole new lens really. Yeah, it really does. And yeah, it's a whole way of shifting your mindset around, around eating and, and lifestyle. Sure. Haley, what do you think in your well, I mean, maybe not necessarily in your in your professional work, but things that you would see that that are working with athletes right now, um, you know, whether they're struggling with anxiety or depression or they have some mental health issues, what what are some things that are, are kind of known that are that are working help helping get them to help or get them um, through that, that struggle while they're still also tasked to, you know, perform? Yeah. So that's a good question. I don't know what's currently working, but here's what I would speculate and also recommend. So I think that there's as much as, uh, health services are being used on college, uh, campuses in general, there's not a lot of people in the athlete world who are necessarily using the sports psychologist or the clinician or whatever, I think one of the most helpful things would have coach introduce, um, the whole team at one time to, um, sports psychologist or whoever the, the school clinician is, I think simply just like normalizing the humanness of this therapist would make a huge difference. Um, ideally, um, the coach would buy into this enough to have the therapist lead some sort of like very brief intervention, whether it's like some sort of mindfulness or some actual like clinical, I don't know, body dissatisfaction group. Um, I think having them just exposure basically would be, would be such a game changer. No pun intended (laughs) Um, (laughs) to the athlete world for sure. I get crazy. Go ahead, uh, Nelson. I was just gonna say, like, it, it, that's so true. Like, what the stigma is, if you if you have to see the sports psychologist, that means things have gone totally off the rails. But it's like, yeah, it's like, why why can't that be like a preventative thing or something? You're taking care of like the rest of your body uh, in preparation. I, I look back at like my college career, and that's just one of my biggest regrets that it wasn't something I invested more time into. Um, but yeah, that's that's so true. I, I definitely think that's that's huge for our listeners. It's crazy to think about how much time beforehand and after that we spent in the athletic training room, getting stim, getting ice, getting heat, getting stretched, yeah. getting getting X, Y, and Z. Uh, like it was so okay. It was more yeah. than okay. It became like social and cool, yeah. and like you yeah. almost were like. Do trying to do it more than it will than what would have been prescribed for you to do it, um, but it was all physical in nature, really. Like I don't, I can't remember a time when either within the athletic department or within our team that there was a broader discussion about utilizing mental health services, or we're going to have someone come in speak to the team, or just like any discussion, really. I have this fantasy that my the second part of my career will be me traveling to different college counseling or different um, university teams and like delivering some brief body dissatisfaction intervention. So, well, I'm wondering, like, even yeah. more broadly, yeah, well, like how far how far away how how far removed are we from getting, I guess, 
that to be a thing. Like if you go on a website, even if of a professional team, if you go on the Chicago Blackhawk website, you see their team, their physicians are on there. They might even have like a team chiropractor on there. How close are we to seeing either professional teams or college teams within their, like what they're promoting on their website for their team? How close are we to seeing, I guess, a mental health person, whether it's a psychologist, a sports psychologist, a team of clinicians, yeah. So it's a really good question. Um, I actually, I know who the, the clinicians are for those teams. Um, but so what I know about that, so the clinicians with the exception of the one for, um, I believe she works with the Hawks and the bears. She happens to have the same training as me, which is she's a clinically trained, I think, psychologist, clinical psychologist, um, with a, you know, sport credentials, meaning, you know, she went, she got the coursework and then got certified to, to be a sport consultant. So I think she can tackle any issue that comes her way, but I know that for the bulls, um, the, she's she's also actually clinically trained, but she only does sports psychology. Um, and I think she was hired to only do sports psychology. I know this because I tried to <laughs> see if she'd take me on as an intern. Um, and she told me she refers to, uh, in the community for um, any mental health concerns that the players might have. So it actually would be really interesting to even just hear from those individuals how how much they're working with the, t- uh, the team and the players in general. Um but again, at a professional elite level, there's just many more resources. Um, again, there's a lot of resources at the division one level. I think that would be very possible too. Um, I just think it's about a matter of time. I think we're starting to shift in that direction, especially with like such prominent figures like Michael Phelps coming out and disclosing the depression and anxiety that he had. Um, so I think it's just a matter of time. So I'm, I'm choosing to remain optimistic. Yeah, I, re- I recall reading some stuff on the Seattle Seahawks um, you know, hiring and endorsing kind of a more progressive like team lifestyle, um, with nutritionists, they had a sports psychologist. I don't know if it was staffed specifically through them or just someone in the Seattle area that they use, but, uh, that seems to be their, I guess their kind of team philosophy. And I mean, they've obviously been successful in the last decade. So, yeah. And do our um, listeners know exactly like what the difference is between a clinical psych person and a sports psychologist? I think they would best be uh, cleared up on that if you if you told <laughs> yeah, them. Yeah, I realize there is no So uh, someone who like would market themselves as a sport consultant or a sports psychologist is someone who's literally focusing on mental skills to increase performance enhancement. So things like um, imagery and. Um, team building as a component of it. I always just generally sum up sports psychology by saying people who are working to train, train the mind the same way you train your muscles. So really building skills for performance, whereas a clinical psychologist, depending on the expertise that they have is going to do basically therapy, but with athletes. So that would be the difference. Do you, um, do you see yourself moving in, in one of those realms as you near, I guess, year five of your, of your PhD program, what's, uh, what's coming, what's coming in the future for you? Um, I definitely want to be a clinical psychologist with, with that clinical psychologist who works with athletes. So the best way I think I'd market myself is I'd call myself a clinical sports psychologist just to convey that that is an expertise of mine. But yeah, I want to stay in the eating disorder realm and I mean, in an ideal world, I'd love to be employed at a college counseling center, 
one with high resources that would maybe, um, ha, ha you know, I, I would be there because of the, the athletic department, at least in part, um, meaning I would see a lot of athletes for the therapy portion. But the position itself, it, it allows you kind of to work in a couple different spaces. Yeah. I'm thinking of a, a couple professors that we had in graduate school who I feel like because of the way they worked, like could never get bored. There were a couple of days where they were working, you know, at the hospital, um, you know, in the sleep lab or something, doing some research. Then they were teaching on campus a couple of nights a week, and then they were seeing patients in their private practice. Um, so it was like the ultimate balance of, yeah. you know, they had their expertise and they had their, you know, their license and all this stuff, but they, they weren't, they weren't stuck in that one, in that one spot. And I mean, I guess you have to be pretty veteran to get to that point where you have the flexibility, but still something to think about in terms of like being able to have some freedom to work in different areas. Yeah. And I, I love the atmosphere and I mean, I'm only going off of one year of experience being in that type of role, but it's such a great team environment to work in. Um, and you have a ton of people, you know, I don't, I don't, I mean, this is how it was for me, but I mean, I wouldn't necessarily have supervisors when I'm licensed, but like other colleagues to, you know, make sure you're giving your patients the best level of care. So it's really nice to have that around. So that's what I aspire to. Haley, I'm going to ask a couple uh, kind of closing questions here that we usually, we kind of sign off with them traditionally um, with all our guests. So wondering what are some good books, resources, podcasts, um, things that you could recommend to, um, you know, either anybody or a current college athlete who tunes in to listen to you and is like, wow, what she's saying, it makes a lot of sense. I need to learn more about it. Um, so a lot of the books that I'm reading in terms of eating disorders are like very specific to the eating disorder population. Um, one, one book that I would actually recommend, and this is going to make you smile, Anthony, is living in the sweet spot. No, I honestly have recommended that. If you listen to a couple episodes of our podcast, I've recommended it to Neil, haven't I? To a bunch of people. And I think it's because it touches on so many relevant aspects of, of sports psychology or even just like things you can apply to just like general life. Like I find myself talking about putting on the 2% blinders and ignoring everything else just in like general speak. Um, so I would recommend that book. I, that's so funny. You brought that up because I, I describe it like as so many people like in the self-help aisle of a bookstore and they're just navigating through all this kind of like fluff and pop science. And so I recommend this book because it's pretty digestible. It's not too sciencey, but it it is also very practical. And it's like, there are some aspects of it that almost act as like a workbook or like, go do this, go do this right now. Um, so that's so funny that you, that you also recommend that. Was that a, weren't they a professor of you guys? And I'm now I'm remembering it. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, and for, if we have any listeners who are, you know, maybe, maybe experiencing some sort of body dissatisfaction or like working on developing a healthy relationship with food, I'd also recommend this book called eating mindfully. Um, I don't necessarily know the author of it, but it would be a really great place to start with managing some eating behaviors that maybe you're not too fond of, um, and, and working towards a healthy relationship with food for sure. 
Hey, Lee, quick question before I know you're going to get into some of the closing ones, but you are, from what I remember, you're the first swimmer we've had. So um, for the swimming audience out there, what do you miss the most from swimming and what don't you miss the most? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> the thing I miss the most from swimming, um, I really miss having exercise just planned in for me and not having to think <laughs> like how I'm going to give, you know, some physical self-care. Um, I probably forgot to, I, I, I omitted this, but I actually do still swim. Um, there's a master's team in Chicago that offers like 10 practices a week. I go to three, um, or I try to go to three. So, um, so I, I still have that. Um, the thing that I don't miss the most about it, um, I like, I like choosing what I'm going to do with my hours. Um, so that, that part's nice, but yeah, I, I definitely, I miss swimming. I, or I, there are aspects that I definitely miss the team camaraderie. Um, and when you go to masters practice, are you still swimming butterfly? Not 200, right? I actually tried to once about four years ago, just <laughs> on a bit with my friend. Um, who's also, I guess went with her in college. No, I don't, I don't do 200 butterfly. I don't ever Good for do you. butterfly again. <laughs> <laughs> that has been retired. Um, yeah, as it should. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, so maybe awesome. thinking about competing eventually in in the next few months, but we'll see. Awesome. We'll be following along. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, Haley, if you, if you could, I mean, you you pretty much doing your work if you're if you're still on campus, but if you could, uh, you know, have a conversation with a current junior or senior athlete, student athlete, and they're thinking about you know, my playing career is coming to an end. What am I going to do when the thing that I've done my whole life is no longer a part of my identity? If you could have that conversation with the, you know, a current student athlete, what would be some advice or takeaways that you could give to them? So first I'd validate that that is a huge, huge identity transition. And, And one thing I just want to mention really quick is what's really interesting, regardless of being at like a recreational level, college level, or even like elite Olympic level, there aren't people like clinicians out there that exist to help athletes with that transition, whether it's like, Hey, your Olympic career is over your Olympic career is over. Let's get you ready for the nine to five, or let's help you figure out how to eat differently. Like people like that don't exist. So it really is up to you to figure out and how to navigate what you want your next uh, path to look like. So in terms of the three pieces of advice that I would give just from my own experience, one would be, it's okay to take baby steps and to roll with it and to figure out what you want next. You don't have to like have this huge plan. It's okay to go slow. Um, the next and possibly most important piece of advice that I'd give is it's also okay to change your mind. You don't have to know what you want to do or like where you want to go next. Um, and if you really feel strongly about it, it's also okay to change your mind a year and a half later. Um, and then the third piece of advice that really helped me talk to people who are going through the same thing, like your teammates and talk to people who have come out from it and are a few years down the line. Like I can't even begin to say how invaluable it is to maintain friendships with older teammates, but also as I was figuring out, I went from clinical neuroscience where I was imaging people's brains to sports psychology. Like I had no idea. I kind of fell into that. I had no idea it was going to be that way, but I think it was really invaluable talking to different people, even people I didn't know um, who seemed to have career paths that I was interested in. Don't be afraid to shoot that email and just pick someone's brain. The worst thing that could happen is they won't respond. But the best thing that could happen is they might actually be able to point you in a direction that you're interested in. 
So those are my pieces of advice. Those, those are awesome takeaways, Haley. If anything, they help confirm some of the stuff that we're trying to, to do here at What's Next. But they also, like, they make you just pretty much like the premise of a lot of what you said, like kind of honoring that the feeling that you're having is is okay. Yeah, it's okay, and it's real, and other people are going through it too. Um, you know, it's so it's so natural to want to like suppress it and move beyond it because we're in like a you know a rush, rush, rush mentality. But um, I think that those pieces of advice are going to be super useful for our listeners. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. And uh, lastly, Haley, before we kind of close out here, if our listeners are interested in picking your brain a little bit more or have some questions about the work you do or anything like that, is there um, a good contact for them to be able to get in touch with you? Yeah, please feel free to email me. Um, it's just my first and last name, all um, no spaces at gmail.com. So Perfect. please don't hesitate awesome. to shoot me an email or... If anyone's listening from Chicago and need to get connected with resources, I think I've been here long enough to know some people in the community. So. Very cool. That's, that's important. I think, uh, you know, to keep, keep this circle of athletes kind of helping other athletes in, uh, in a moving forward fashion. So really appreciate you, you coming on with us tonight. It's been, it's yeah. been great and it's been insightful. I think we've all learned a lot. Um, so yeah, thanks so much, Haley. Yeah, happy to be here with you guys. All right, Ant, that was uh, that was an awesome one, man. Um, definitely enjoyed the time with Haley. Uh, did you have a favorite part? I'm trying, I'm thinking like where there was a lot to digest for it. Yeah, I thought there were a couple of good uh, good uh, portions from that from that interview. I I found it funny that we uh, actually both had recommended the same book to to listeners. Um, when we had an episode with just us on, we were talking about favorite books and podcasts and stuff like that. And Haley, same thing. Uh, we both talked about Living in the Sweet Spot, which was a book by um, one of our professors from graduate school, Dr. Amy Baltzell. And just to sum it up again, it's kind of like, you know, at least for me, seeing a lot of people wanting self-help in the self-help aisle at Barnes & Noble or whatnot. And there's kind of just like a lot of fluff and pop science there. And so this book is much more evidence-based, but also digestible and practical about, you know, different mental skills, whether, whether you're an athlete or whether you're not an athlete and you're just trying to better yourself in your daily life by setting better goals, you know, having, you know, more positive thoughts or reframing the, the negative thoughts that you have, just, just real tactical tasks to do those things. Yeah, I like that. And her, um, her piece about it being okay to take baby steps in the transition, I think that's a big one. It, it can be, seem daunting and you got to take all this stuff at once. It's a big transition life after sports or you're changing careers. Uh, take those baby steps, make those changes and it being okay to change your mind. Um, that's just something to continue to reinforce. So I thought that was great. Uh, so we'll link up her email. Like she said, reach out to her if you got questions um, and then always uh, tweet, uh, talk with us, um, join the conversation. We're at what's next underscore pod. We'll link up to all the social outlets, but um, yeah, we want to hear from you guys, your feedback on the episode, uh, things you're dealing with, life after sports, um, or even if you just got some ideas for our next podcast. Thank you so much, everybody, for the time. Aunt Gary, I thought this was an awesome one. See you guys. And Kev, we missed you, buddy. <laughs>